0: Today we are starting a new teaching series called Major on the Minors. And uh, as we get into this, let me ask you a question. Have you ever sensed or believed that you were being asked or told to do something that seemed ridiculous or impossible, total madness, or well outside of your comfort zones? We find quite a few examples of this in the Bible. Take Abraham not only told to pack up and head off into the unknown, but then bizarrely instructed to sacrifice the one son that he and his wife had longed for for years. Why? Or what about Moses told to turn up before one of the most powerful, intimidating men of his day and instruct him to let a whole people group, his entire workforce, simply walk free? And given that Moses had something of a speech problem, it was a big ask. Or what about every disciple of Jesus Christ, every Christian, told to love their enemies, to pray for those who give you grief? But when it comes to what appears to be a completely crazy request, there's one in biblical history that stands out. And for the next uh, few weeks here at Windsor, we're going to trace that story. It's the story of Hosea, one of the 12 so-called minor prophets. Not minor because he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight version of the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but minor because of the length of the minor prophets' books. Most of them are very short. In fact, Some of them, one of them, is only one chapter long. But there's no reduction in their potency or their content. They are not less important, and Hosea is no exception. But let me set the scene before we discover what was his big ask. We're obviously heading back into the Old Testament. We actually haven't been here as a church since August And in terms of the six-act drama, we're revisiting Act 3. We're somewhere in there. Time wise 8th century BC. King Jeroboam II has been in the throne of Israel for something like 44 years. And during his reign, Israel had enjoyed a time of prosperity and political stability and security. But spiritually the people are a mess. They're all over the place. They're compromised. They're unfaithful. They're dismissive of God. They didn't need God anymore. Or so they thought. And even though some people had come along and challenged their complacency, they just chose to totally ignore the messengers and their messages. And after Jeroboam died the nation really did go down the tubes. And for the next 30 years, near anarchy reigned in Israel. There were six different kings. Four of them were assassinated, usually by their successors. And this led to political chaos. The structure of society seemed to be coming apart at the seams. And violence on the streets was all the norm. To make matters worse, the renewed threat of an invasion by Assyria had gone up a few notches, mainly because they had just installed an ambitious new king who had big ideas on extending his influence and his empire. And so socially, politically, economically, and possibly above all, spiritually, these were dark, these were disturbing days for the Israelites. And it was during this time of bloodshed and revolt and the breakup of a nation that Hosea walked onto the stage and he started to preach. But what was he asked to say and do? Well, let me read you the first verse of Hosea chapter 1. It's page 900 in the Bibles in the pews. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Bere, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Now that opening phrase clarifies Hosea's credentials as a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him. And then if you look at chapter or verse 2, it confirms that Hosea then becomes a conduit. He shares the word of God with others. So let's uh, stand together, as we often do, and read from verses 2 to verse 9. I'm going to take my time, because as I've said before, I get often criticised for reading too fast. So I'm going to take my time. When the Lord began to speak... Through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and in that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again, gave birth to a daughter, then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her lo for it means I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Rahoma, Gomer had another son, and then the Lord said, Call him lo for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Take a seat. I, uh, I want you to imagine Hosea heading home. With the exciting news that he's going to get married. I'm not sure if it happened like this, but you've got to allow me some poetic license, okay? Dad, who's called Beery. Dad, I'm getting married. God's confirmed that it's all arranged. That's great, son. What's her name? Gomer. Okay, different. It's okay. And then the inevitable next question. What does she do? well, that's a bit tricky, Dad. (laughs) I'm not totally sure what she does, although I've got a fair idea. But I do know one thing for definite. She's going to cheat on me. That's a cert. And there's going to be kids involved. And you can only imagine what a dad and a prospective grandfather makes of this. I'm pretty convinced Barry would have asked, who's it?" Why are you doing this? And as far as that question is concerned, Hosea had an answer. I'm doing it because God wants to use my marriage as a living illustration of his relationship with Israel. I'm, we about to be used as a dramatic visual drama of what's going on between God and his people. This is going to show Exactly how God feels. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, Hosea. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. God is 100% faithful, He's ever loving. But at the minute, God feels like someone whose partner is committing adultery. And so he calls Hosea to experience what he's experiencing. He wants Hosea to face the effects and the pain of infidelity so that he can speak about it with feeling and with integrity. Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman. And go have children with her. It's a shocking request. Humanly speaking it makes next to no sense. Try, although it's virtually impossible. Try. Men of this congregation. Try put yourself in his shoes. What would you do? And two things immediately stand out as we get into this. First, Unlike Moses, for example, there's no questioning. There's no arguing, there's no comeback, or at least there's none recorded. Part of me can't believe, I cannot believe that Hosea said nothing by way of an initial reaction. Moses definitely queried God. God, I'm wicked speaking. And he had all sorts of issues with the request that God had on him. But Hosea... It seems to just take the instruction and move on. And for me, that's a challenge in itself. But the second thing that strikes me is the beginning of verse 3. So he married Gomer. Radical, uncompromising, blatant obedience to the word of God. Hosea simply did what God asked him to do, despite the implications What is God asking you to do? What's God asking me to do? Today, this week, this year, are we questioning it? Are we questioning God? Or are we getting on with it? Are we doing it? Are we embracing it despite how strange, difficult, and potentially misunderstood it is? And we are, or we will be. In time, yes, some of this will fall into place, but initially this all seemed like sheer madness. Reminds me uh, something Philip Yancey once said, Following God involves having a faith in him such that you believe in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Take a moment to just read that over, because that's good. (laughs) I can say that because I didn't write it. For now, and in some ways forever, this is going to be miserable for Hosea. But one of the key things that's happening here was that through this bitter experience, Hosea was learning something of the heart of God for the people of Israel. Through being invited into heartache, into disappointment, into frustration, into anger, Hosea was discovering firsthand. How God felt as he watched his people being unfaithful to him. Cheating on him. As these people just took God's love and threw it right back in his face. Gomer was going to rip Hosea's heart apart. But that would act as a graphic picture of the broken heart of God. God loved his people. But in their unfaithfulness, their indifference, their casual, I couldn't care less attitude about sin and rejection of God, God's heart was breaking, you see. And please, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Sin isn't so much against God's law as it is a betrayal of God's love. Sin isn't so much against God's law as it is a betrayal of God's love. Sin offends a holy God. Of course it does. But do you know something? It breaks the father's heart. And if we miss that, we miss so much. Now as this phenomenal and moving living illustration plays out, sure enough, Hosea and Gomer have kids, three of them. Two boys and a girl, although it's probably worth saying there's a bit of a question mark over who the actual dad is of the second and third kid. The text is rather ambiguous. Now, having kids is meant to be a positive, joyful experience. But each time as Hosea discovers their names, names that are given to them by God, he realizes, do you know something? Even my kids are being used to communicate a disturbing message to the people of God. His first boy is called Jezreel. You'll notice that there's no explicit definition offered there in the text. Although as you read verses 4 and 5, it's pretty obvious that it contains certain ominous overtones. There's a reference to punishment. There's a reference to the end of the kingdom of Israel. Jezreel was a place. It was a place of massacre, according to verse 4. According to verse 5, it was a valley, which was the scene of various famous battles throughout Scripture. The point was this. The birth of Hosea's first son indicates and promises, do you know something? There's dark days ahead. God can't and he won't sit back and do nothing. God is about to take very decisive action. And Gomer then gives birth to a second child. Baby girl. And this time the meaning of her name is absolutely clear and it's absolutely tragic. Call her Lo Rehoma, says God, which means not loved. What does your name mean? I'll guarantee it's something positive. My name, David, means uh, beloved. Beloved one. Do you know something that, that, that's pretty affirming? Can you imagine your parents giving you a name like this? And then having to try to explain it as you grew up? Serious self-esteem issues for that young girl. But again, look at what is going on here. Look at verse 6. Call her low, Rahoma, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. As this little girl grew up in the village and played in the streets, you know she was sharing the prophet Hosea's task. She was a walking audio visual aid in the service of the prophetic message of doom. And you know something so much of me finds that deeply uncomfortable. But don't be too quick to point the finger and miss the bigger picture. And then another son is born just goes from bad to worse. He's called Loami, which means not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Signifies a major reversal. Back in Exodus 6, way back at the beginning of the story, what does God say to them? I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. It's all starting to unravel. Because now as this third kid is named, the people are confronted with a dark and uncompromising message of devastation and destruction. Their future is dismal. And it will be, and there's no avoiding that. They have opted to live a capital G godless life, certainly entertained and sold their souls to various other gods. But in their relationship with the one true God who called them, who rescued them, who led them, who promised and delivered so much, they have constantly cheated on him. Being unfaithful, disobedient, went backwards, not forwards, ignored him, kept doing more evil than the previous generation. Spiritually, they just kept sleeping around. And what they needed to realize, and this is something we must never forget, sin and disobedience and a rejection of God matters. Sin is spiritual spiritual adultery. It's got to be dealt with. It's got to be addressed. It has its consequences. You can't play fast and loose with God and expect no kickback. And these people would very soon discover that. As future exile at the hands of the Assyrians would eventually reveal. Their immediate future was extremely bleak. But in the midst of this reality check... In the midst of this difficult message of impending mess, there's hope. Because all of a sudden, and it is all of a sudden, in chapter 1 and at verse 10, have a look at it with me, and it runs through to the first verse of chapter 2, we discover something incredible beyond the immediate. It's not all gloom and doom by any stretch of the imagination. It's not game over, lights out forever. Verse 10 begins with, yet... It's a word that implies more. A word that indicates there is the possibility of a new day. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. And as they hear this, that would have rang all sorts of bells. That would have been incredibly familiar because it takes us back to the start of this big story. Started a special relationship between God and his people. Whenever God promised to Abraham in Genesis 32 that your descendants, Abraham, will be as many as the sand of the seashore which cannot be counted. And so after the devastation that is to come, and it will come because there are consequences to our sin. But after that, there's a chance of a new start. It's more than a hint of hope. And then in another kind of great reversal, only this time it's a positive one, God takes, have a look at this with me, God takes the three kids' names and does a 180 with them. A complete turnabout. In the place where it was said of them, you're not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. So from not my people to children of the living God, a, a, a term that stresses relationship, intimacy, identity. And it's not just a people this time, it's now children. And it's not just of God, it's of the living God. And then notice that Jezreel is going to become associated with greatness. And finally, from being not loved, to being my loved one. See, God is the God of new beginnings, the God of second chances, the God of transformation, change. And as you get into chapter 2, and we're not going to have time to read it this morning, but as you get into chapter 2, you find that God is depicted as a jilted husband who wants to win his wife back. And yes, he's angry with her. Of course he's angry with her. And he warns her of the implications of of her adultery. But instead of getting rid of her, which he had every right to do, instead of getting rid of her, He determines the winner back. I will make you my wife forever. I'll show you unfailing love and compassion. I'll be faithful to you. I will show love to those people I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people And they will reply, you are our God. And do you know something? For me, as I've read this during the week, I find this deeply moving material because God's heart is laid bare. It's right out there. But as we'll discover, even though God puts his heart out there, the Israelites refused or certainly struggled to acknowledge God's love for them. Or even amend their behavior in any way. And therefore all this talk of hope. Well for now it remains a far off promise. But let's get back to Hosea's story again. Beginning of chapter 3. And for us who know the rest of the story. Who live this side if you like of the New Testament. The imagery here. And I'm not going to spell it out. But the imagery here should cry out to us and speak volumes. You see, it seems pretty clear from the story that at some point, Gomer walked. At some point, probably after the birth of the third kid, she just left Hosea. She abandoned her three kids. And she's fallen in love with someone else. She's committed adultery probably numerous times. But God then says to Hosea, Hosea, go and show your love to her again. Verse 1, chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and she is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Do you know, despite Gomer's sickening unfaithfulness, Hosea keeps loving her. And despite the people's sickening unfaithfulness, God keeps loving them extravagantly. Turns out Gomer's reached a pretty low point. She's actually, as you'll note, up for sale. She's up for sale at the local market. She's enslaved, it would seem, by the very thing that she thought would bring her pleasure and comfort and love, which is the story of so many people today. They turn their back in God's ways to do their own thing, and they only end up trapped and disillusioned and discontent. And I wonder whenever Gomer saw Hosea in the crowd, she's standing there, probably naked, being sold. And as she sees Hosea, she looks out and she sees Hosea. I wonder, did she think he's here to gloat? He's here to express his anger. He's here to watch me squirm as I get laid off by the highest bidder. Turns out, Hosea has come to demonstrate love. And how does he do that? He pays a significant price. Not just money. He gathers as much money as he can. It's not enough. And so he has to also give a substantial amount of grain. Not to buy her as a slave. But to take her home again as his wife. Extraordinary unconditional, sacrificial love. It's scandalous. Why would he do that? I'm sure lots of people standing in the crowd are going, what is he at? She's hurt him. She's guilty of taking his marriage vows and throwing them back in his face. And yet he's here loving her, pursuing her, and re-establishing relationship with her. And again, through this moving, living metaphor, this real-life drama, God is wanting his people to see the bigger picture, to grasp the deeper meaning, to get their head round what this communicates about how God feels about them, that in spite of your appalling choices, in spite of your adulterous lifestyle your blatant unfaithfulness, your failure, your disloyalty, God still passionately loves you this morning. His love is not quenched. And he'll pursue you. And he has made reconnection possible. Did Gomer deserve Hosea's love? Not a chance, but she experienced it. And again, what we celebrate this morning is the reassurance that God graciously loves his people even when they don't deserve it, even when they reject it, even when they fall into sin, even when they turn their backs on God, even when they prostitute themselves by loving someone or something else more than God, God still loves. God is, reference to last week, reference to last year, abounding in love. And he expresses it to those who are totally unworthy. And if you're here this morning and you feel totally unworthy. God loves you. And no one should ever really query the love of God. The availability of it. The real question is how will you respond to it. That's the real question. And next week we'll continue working our way through Hosea's prophecy. And at times it will be a tough read. But for us, reading back into Act 3, we are people who have the privilege of knowing Act 4. Of knowing what God would eventually do in expressing his immense and his immeasurable love for this world by giving his only son, by paying an incredible price in order to make intimate relationship with him not only possible but experiential. We are constantly confronted here at Windsor by the scandalous love of God. And the Apostle Peter picking up on Hosea's story years later. We'd write this in relation to us. As he picks up in the imagery from Hosea's story. Once you were not a people. This is us. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Hi, How? How? as the result of the outrageous love ultimately expressed in Jesus. So how will I, how do I respond to this? Well you know sadly at times I commit spiritual adultery and some of us have this week. I love other things more than God. I become unfaithful. I play the part of Gomer. But here's the scandal. I'm loved. We're loved. We're children of the living God. And surely that inspires and encourages and motivates us to live differently.